January is the time of year when resolutions are made and broken. According to something I read this last week, January 19th is the day that most resolutions die. (laughs) So you got about 10 days. But even given our generally poor track record with resolutions, I do think it still makes sense that this time of year to, to spend some time reviewing and perhaps setting some goals for the coming year. In a couple of weeks, we'll be holding our annual report meeting. This is a time when different leaders in the church present reports, both oral and written, about what's been going on here at the church. Many of these reports are backwards-looking. They are a review of what's taken place in the last year. But they're also an opportunity to look forward and to talk about what we are praying and planning and hoping that God is going to do in this coming year. And so I hope that whether you're a covenant member or just a regular attendee of our church, that you'll plan to come to that meeting on January 22nd, uh, because the elders and I have some stuff that we want to share about what we've been, some of the stuff that we've been doing lately and what we believe God is going to do in this coming year here at DFBC. But I'm not going to talk about any of those things this morning. However, I do have a couple of things uh, that I want to share with you. Uh, two things that I think can help, really help guide us and get things started right in this new year. Two things that I think are going to be able to guide us no matter what this new year may end up holding for us as a church, as families, as couples, even as individuals. One of them is a reminder. The other is a request. And both of them come out of the text that we're going to look at this morning. This morning, we are going to return. We're going to resume our series from the Old Testament book of Joshua. Now, this is a book that tells us how the Israelites entered and then claimed the land of Canaan. A book that shows us how God fulfilled one of the great promises that he had made to Abraham. The promise of a great homeland for all of his descendants. This is a book that God has designed to still speak to us today. And so this morning, we are going to see a test of faithfulness, both the faithfulness of Joshua and God's faithfulness. We're going to see how this, we're going to learn how this test came about and how it was all resolved And along the way, we're going to discover how this story can help us as we seek to live faithfully and well in this new year that we've just begun together. So if you've got a Bible, I want to invite you to open up to Joshua chapter 10. Joshua chapter 10. If you don't have a Bible with you uh, or a Bible app on your smartphone, grab one of those red Bibles that's there in front of you. And if you're using one of our red Bibles, we're going to be on page 344 is where we're going to start. Joshua chapter 10. Here's how it starts. 
Now, Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard that Joshua had taken Ai and totally destroyed it, doing to Ai and its kings as he had done to Jericho and its king, and that the people of Gibeon had made a treaty of peace with Israel and had become their allies. He and his people were very much alarmed at this because Gibeon was an important city, like one of the royal cities. It was larger than Ai, and all of its men were good fighters. Now, if by chance you spent the last week reading the first nine chapters of Joshua, then you probably tracked with everything that I just read. (laughs) But I'm going to guess that wasn't most of you. (laughs) Especially since it has been uh, at least six weeks since we were last in Joshua together. So, I'm going to take a few minutes and remind you of where we are and how we got here where we are here in Joshua. So let's step back for a moment. Joshua is the leader of the Israelites. He'd been chosen by God to continue the mission that God had given to Moses, and that was to lead God's specially chosen people, the descendants of Abraham, the Israelites, into this new homeland that God had promised to them, the land of Canaan. Shortly before actually entering into the land, Moses had died, and this is when Joshua took over. Well, their first battle with the Canaanites, the Battle of Jericho, it went really, really well. God promised to take care of it for them, and he did. All Joshua and the Israelites had to do was march around the city for a week and then yell, at which point God caused the walls of the city to collapse giving the Israelites an easy and decisive victory. But following this great success, things took a tragic turn. See, at Jericho, God had told Joshua and the Israelites not to take any plunder for themselves. Instead, they were to dedicate this entire city and everything and everyone that was in it to God through its complete destruction. But one of the Israelites, a man by the name of Achan, disobeyed God's command, stealing some silver and gold and clothing for himself that he found during the battle. His disobedience, however, was not discovered until the Israelites went on and attacked Ai, which was a small and insignificant outpost compared to the walled city of Jericho. And what should have been a cakewalk turned into a stunning defeat when Ai was able to turn the Israelites back and even chase them away from their city, their village, really. Because God had withdrawn his blessing and protection because of Achan's disobedience. And for that, the whole nation ended up suffering. Now, fortunately, once Achan's sin was revealed and then dealt with, God enabled Joshua and the Israelites to take Ai a second time without difficulty. But both the Israelites and the Canaanites learned something important that day. Israel Israel learned that that they really needed to trust and obey God if they were going to take this land, be able to take this land that God had promised to them. And the Canaanites learned that despite Israel's supernatural victory at Jericho, they were not, in fact, indestructible or invincible. However, in the midst of all this going on, there was one group of Canaanites, the Gibeonites, that weren't so sure 
that Israel was in fact beatable. They believed that Yahweh, the God of the Israelites, the God that we learn about in the Bible, they believed that God was going to keep his promise and was going to give this entire land to the Israelites, as he had said. And so the people of Gibeon, they considered their situation and they determined that their best chance of survival was to make a peace treaty with the Israelites. But there was a catch to this. In the law that Moses had given them, God had told the Israelites not to make any peace treaties with any of the Canaanites. Instead, all of the Canaanites were to be devoted to God through their destruction. Well, the Gibeonites, aware of this, when they sent emissaries to Israel, they ended up using deception and tricked the Israelites into believing that they were a people who lived outside of the land of Canaan. And it wasn't until after a treaty had been formalized and the leaders of Israel had sworn an oath in Yahweh's name that their ruse was discovered. At this point, some of the Israelites still wanted to destroy the Gibeonites for having tricked them. But Joshua intervened and he saved the Gibeonites. And he did so by dedicating them to God, not through their destruction, but through their service, as Joshua made them responsible for providing for the needs of the altar where Yahweh, where God was worshipped. While it appears that Joshua has managed to redeem this otherwise really messy situation, What we don't know yet is what God thinks of this arrangement. Remember, the last time that the people disobeyed God at Jericho, their next battle was a disaster at Ai. And so if we're reading this text carefully and thoughtfully, we should be asking ourselves, now that this treaty has been made, What's going to happen the next time Joshua and the Israelites go into battle? Well, in Joshua 10, we get to find out. So let's look at the text. I'm going to start again at verse 1. I'm going to read a little slower this time. And now you're more familiar with the names that are in here. Now, Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, Canaanite king, heard that Joshua had taken Ai and totally destroyed it, which is what happened the second time Joshua fought Ai. Doing to Ai and its king as he'd done to Jericho and its king, meaning put them to death. And that the people of Gibeon had made a treaty of peace with Israel and had become their allies. He and his people, meaning Adonai Zedek and his people, were very much alarmed at this. Because Gibeon was an important city, like one of the royal cities. It was larger than Ai, and its men were good fighters. So Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, appealed to Hohem, king of Hebron, Piram, king of Jarmuth, Japhia, king of Lachish, and Debir, king of Eglon. Come up and help me attack Gibeon, he said, because he's made peace with Joshua and with the Israelites. 
Then the five kings of the Amorites, the kings of Jerusalem, Hebron, Jarmuth, Lachis, and Eglon, joined forces. And they moved up with all their troops, and they took positions against Gibeon, and they attacked it. So basically, when Adonai Zedek, the Canaanite king of Jerusalem, he learns that Gibeon has made this peace treaty with Israel, he calls out four other kings, as well as their armies, to join with him in attacking the Gibeonites. Now, the reason that this alliance of five kings and their armies decides to attack Gibeon rather than Israel directly is probably related to Gibeon's location. Situated along important trade routes there in the very center of Canaan, Gibeon was kind of like the gateway to Israel's future expansion into the country, into the land of Canaan. And so the other Canaanites, these five Canaanite kings, needed to break this alliance between Gibeon and Israel. And of course, doing it this way would also send a warning to the rest of the Canaanite cities not to ever do something like try to ally themselves with Israel in the future. Well, as this is taking place, as the armies are marching upon them, the Gibeonites know that they are overmatched. And so at this point, they really do the only thing that they can. They cry out to Joshua for help. Joshua had intervened and saved them once before. So maybe he would do it for them again. Look at verse 6. The Gibeonites sent, then sent word. Start over. The Gibeonites then sent word to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal. Do not abandon your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us. Help us, because all the Amorite kings from the hill country have joined forces against us. Now, before we find out what ends up happening here, I want you to see that this turn of events creates an interesting opportunity and decision for Joshua and the rest of the Israelites. They actually have several different things to consider here. First, if they try to go and rescue the people of Gibeon, which would seem to be part of this treaty obligation that they had made to them, they're going to be facing a military force that is much larger and much more unified than any other that they have faced to this point. And so there is real risk here for them. Additionally, they still don't really know. They, the Israelites, Joshua and the Israelites, don't really know what their treaty with the Gibeonites has done to their relationship with God. Because when God withdrew his blessing last time, after the battle of Jericho, Israelites, they were defeated by a very small, insignificant outpost at Ai. But now they would be facing five organized armies. And so if Ai had been bad, and it was, this had the makings of potentially something much, much worse for them. But on the other hand, they could look at the situation as an opportunity, an opportunity to get out of and to get rid of this rather messy alliance that they had made with the Gibeonites. See, if Joshua at this point just does nothing, if he ignores Gibeon's call for help, then the Gibeonite problem goes away. 
Adonai Zedek and his alliance of five armies, they're going to overrun Gibeon. And not only then will this, will ad, this ill-advised treaty be gone, but the Gibeonites themselves are going to be destroyed, and they're no longer going to be part of the equation here in Canaan. So depending on how you look at this, this could be an interesting opportunity and decision that presents itself to Joshua. Hypothetically, this could be a way out of a mistake that they'd made earlier. But Joshua, rather than trying to turn two wrongs into a right, chooses the path of faithfulness, seemingly willing to accept whatever faithfulness might end up costing him. Look at verse 7. So Joshua marched up from Gilgal with his entire army, including all the best fighting men. And it's at this point that then God shows up and gives Joshua his verdict. Verse 8, the Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid of them. I have given them into your hand. None of them are going to be able to withstand you. And so even as, even as Joshua chooses to be faithful to the promise, to the covenant, to the peace treaty that he had made with the Gibeonites, God, in this moment, also affirms his faithfulness to Joshua. God tells Joshua that he does not need to fear these five armies nor any fallout from this treaty that he has made with the Gibeonites. God tells them that, they, that he is going to remain faithful to them, faithful to his plan and to his promise, and he is going to give him this land just as he said that he would. I mean, that preaches, doesn't it? When we are faithful to the promises and the covenants that we have made, even when they become costly and difficult and messy for us, we are going to find that God remains faithful to us. It's really good, isn't it? That's a sermon for a different day. So God has promised Joshua that these five Canaanite armies are going to be defeated. Well, the next part of the text describes exactly how God accomplishes this. Look at verse 9. After an all-night march from Gilgal, Joshua took them, the five armies, by surprise. And the Lord threw them into confusion before Israel. So Joshua and the Israelites defeated them completely at Gibeon. Israel pursued them along the road going up to Beth Horon and cut them down all the way to Azekah and Makeda. As they fled before Israel on the road from Beth Horon to Azekah, the Lord hurled huge hailstones down on them, and more of them died from the hail than were killed by the swords of the Israelites. And on the day the Lord gave the Amorites over to Israel, Joshua said to the Lord in the presence of Israel, Son, stand still over Gibeon, and you, moon, over the valley of Ajalon. I don't know. <laughs> so the sun stood still and the moon stopped till the nation avenged itself on its enemies. As it is written in the book of Jashar, 
the sun stopped in the middle of the sky and delayed going down about a full day. There's never been a day like it before or since, a day when the Lord listened to a human being. Surely the Lord was fighting for Israel. And Joshua returned with all Israel to the camp at Gilgal. So after marching all night, Joshua, the Israelites, they joined the fight. But the author of this text makes it really clear that just as at Jericho, it is really God who wins this battle for them. The text describes how God intervenes uh, in several different ways. And in verse 10, God throws the Canaanite armies into confusion. You can't fight well when your army's in confusion. In verse 11, God sends hail that strikes down more Canaanite soldiers than Joshua and his army do. And then finally, the text tells us that God does something even more spectacular. Joshua asks God to intervene on a cosmic scale, and God hears and responds to Joshua's prayer, granting Joshua's request in a way that seems to prolong the day and thereby extend Joshua's victory. Now, I describe it that way on purpose because... Even among biblical scholars who are committed to the authority and the trustworthiness of Scripture, they're not unanimous in how they understand exactly what is being described here. And I want to be very clear, the debate that I'm talking about here is not over whether this text can be trusted or not. The question is how this text expects us to understand what it's telling us. Certainly the traditional and the majority view is that it got it, I'm sorry, the traditional and majority view is that at Joshua's request, God supernaturally extends the day until Joshua's victory here is complete. The NIV translation that I've been reading to you reflects this understanding. And we certainly know that extending the length of a day is certainly within the capabilities of the God who has created and now sustains this world, this universe in which we live. But however the author of this text expects us to understand the precise nature of God's intervention here, what the author actually wants to emphasize is that what God has done here, God has done in response to Joshua's request. All right, look again at verse 14. There has never been a day like it before or since, obviously referring to the apparent extension of the day. Right? But the text says what makes this day so remarkable, a day not that was extended, a day when the Lord listened to a human being. Surely the Lord was fighting for Israel. So what I'm trying to say is what the author of the text wants us to marvel at most is not what happened, but why it happened. Yes, it is God who does this amazing cosmic level thing. But he did it in response to the request, in response to the prayer of a human being. 
And that, according to the author of Joshua, is what makes this event most amazing. Joshua prays a big, audacious prayer, and God responds. Now, yes, you know, if you read the Bible regularly, you know that there are all sorts of examples in Scripture of how God responds to the prayers of his people. So that itself is not new. And it's certainly something that the Bible consistently teaches. I mean, we could, we could even say that that is a theme that we find in the Bible, God responding to the prayers of his people. But what seems to be emphasized here is simply the size of the request and God's willingness to grant it, even though it's so big and so audacious. Joshua asks for cosmic level intervention, and God responds. We're going to come back to that, uh, but I want to finish the rest of the text first. Verse 15, uh, which I read earlier, basically concludes Israel's battle against the five Canaanite armies. But there's still more about this battle event that the author of the text wants to tell us about. And so, it actually, what comes next in the text we find out what happened to the five Canaanite kings during the battle that's now already taken place. So chronologically, what I'm about to read to you actually fits into verse 10 when the Canaanite armies are on the run. Uh, so verse 16. Now the five kings had fled and hidden in the cave at Makeda. When Joshua was told that the five kings had been found hiding in the cave at Makeda, he said, Roll large rocks up to the mouth of the cave and, and post some men there to guard it. But don't stop. Pursue your enemies. So he's saying this to the rest of the army. Keep going. Keep chasing you know, the, the, the enemy armies. Attack them from the rear. Don't let them reach their cities. For the Lord your God has given them into your hand. So Joshua and the Israelites defeated them completely. But a few survivors managed to reach their fortified cities. The whole army, then the whole Israelite army returned safely to Joshua in the camp of Makeda, and no one uttered a word against the Israelites. So the armies, the Canaanite armies defeated and on the run, these Canaanite kings who had organized the armies in the first place, they decide to hide in a cave, hoping to escape until the danger had passed and then you know, make a quick exit or something like that. But Joshua somehow learns that they're there. But rather than stop his armies from continuing to pursue the other Canaanite armies, he just has the mouth of the cave blocked with large rocks, basically kind of creating a jail or a prison there and posts some men there to guard until they can all come back and deal with these five kings. And once this battle is over, Joshua does return to the cave. And, and as he deals with these kings, as he deals justice uh, related to these kings and ultimately executes them, he also uses this as an opportunity to, to teach something, uh, encourage his leaders with something that's very important for them to remember and to understand. Um, he uses it as an opportunity to, to, to teach his leaders to trust in God's faithfulness and promises. Look at verse 22. Joshua said, this is after he's come back, open the mouth of the cave and bring these five kings out to me. So they brought the five kings out of the cave, the kings of Jerusalem, Hebron, Jarmuth, Lachish, and Eglon. When they brought these kings to Joshua, he, stumbled, he summoned all the men of Israel and said to the army commanders who had come with them, the Israelite army commanders, come here and put your feet on the necks of these kings. 
They came forward and placed their feet on their necks, kind of symbolic of their victory. Joshua said to them, do not be afraid. And he's saying this not to the king's line on the ground. He's saying this to his Israelite commanders. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Be strong and courageous. It's basically all the same things that God has been saying to Joshua as they've entered the land. This is what the Lord will do to all the enemies that you are going to fight. At this point, Joshua puts the kings to death um, in a manner that, frankly, we would think of as quite brutal, but was um, how it was done back in that day. Joshua put the kings to death, exposed their bodies on five poles. They were left hanging on the poles until evening. At sunset, Joshua gave the order, and they took them down from the poles and threw them into the cave where they'd been hiding. At the mouth of the cave, they placed large rocks. Uh, Prison becomes a tomb, uh, which are there to this day. Chapter 10 isn't over yet, uh, and the next part of chapter 10 actually recounts what happens after this. Joshua and the Israelites, they undertake a military campaign in which they head south and defeat uh, many of the major cities in the southern portion of Canaan, including some of those that had been ruled by these kings that they just defeated. Um, I'll let you read about that, uh, but I do want to highlight the summary of what happened there, which is what we find in verse 40, so jump down to verse 40. So Joshua subdued the whole region, including the hill country, the Negev, the western foothills, and the mountain slopes, together with all their kings. He left no survivors, at least not in the cities. He totally destroyed all who breathed, just as the Lord, the God of Israel, had commanded. Joshua subdued them from Kadesh Barnea to Gaza, from the whole region of Goshen to Gibeon. All these kings and their lands Joshua conquered in one campaign, which would be the southern part of Canaan. Because the Lord, the God of Israel, fought for Israel. And Joshua returned with all Israel to the camp at Gilgal. Joshua chapter 10 is oftentimes considered one of the great stories in the book of Joshua. Because it's got all the stuff that great stories are made of. High stakes suspense, risk, miracles. But there are two things in particular that I hope that, you're gonna, that you will take away from it as we begin this new year together. Two things that I believe can get us started off right. Two things to guide us no matter what this year ends up holding for us. As I told you at the beginning, The first of these two things is a reminder. I want you to remember in 2023 that God is faithful. He is faithful to his plans and to his promises. And so that means that when God says to you that if you seek him, you will find him, you will. It means that when God promises to save you, if you will call upon him, he will. 
It means that when God says that he will never leave you, he will never forsake you, he won't. It means that when God says that he gives you his spirit so that you have all that you need in order to be able to follow him faithfully, he does. It means that when God says that there is no power in this world, there's no power in this universe that can separate you from him, he means it. It means that when God promises that if you're among those who love him, that he will work all things for your good and for his glory, he will. It means that when God declares to us that one day he is going to return and finally and forever fix all that is broken in our world, it means that we can believe that he is really coming. As we begin 2023 together, remember that God is faithful, faithful to his plans and to his promises. And so as Joshua said to his commanders, do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Instead, be strong and be courageous. The second takeaway I have for you is actually a request, a request that I want to make of you, and it is this. In 2023, pray big, audacious prayers. Our text today tells us and has shown us that the Lord listened to a human being. Now, that doesn't automatically mean that God is always going to grant everything that we ask of him. Uh, and that's because prayer doesn't give us the power to control God. But what we do see here is that God hears and responds to our prayers, even big, audacious prayers. And so we should not be afraid to pray for really big things, especially things that, that seem to be in line with the heart and mission and purposes of God as he works in this beautiful but broken world of ours. And so is there a situation at your work or in your neighborhood that, that just grieves you? I'm talking about the kind of thing that just seems like it's impossible for it to ever be fixed. Pray big, audacious prayers about it in 2023. Because there's no telling what God might do. You worried about the direction of our country. Does your heart hurt, break over what you see happening in Ukraine? Pray big, audacious prayers about these things in 2023. And there's no telling what God might do. Pray for the people in your life who, at this point, don't seem to have any interest in following Jesus. Co-workers, neighbors, your child, maybe your parent, maybe your spouse, maybe a good friend. You know, even if you've tried to share with them in the past, and quite frankly, they seem less interested today than ever before, 
pray big, audacious prayers for them in 2023. And there's no telling what God might do. So that is my request of you in 2023. Pray big, audacious prayers. Because our God is powerful. And he responds to our prayers. And that leads us to where we get to see the power and the responsiveness of God most clearly. And it's not in miracles. It's in a person, the person of Jesus. Throughout our series in the book of Joshua, we have seen how this Joshua, the leader of the Israelites, is intended to point us to the greater Joshua, who is Jesus. Because just as this Joshua heard the cries of the Gibeonites and came to them when what they faced was certain death and destruction, Jesus heard our cries and became one of us when what we were otherwise facing was certain death and destruction. And just as this Joshua remained faithful to the covenant that he had made with the Gibeonites, and he didn't forsake them, even though it might be very costly to him, Jesus remains faithful to the covenant that he has made with us and doesn't forsake us even when it cost him his life. My friends, as we begin this new year, renew your faith and your hope in Jesus, the greater Joshua, the God who has become one of us. Remember that he is faithful to his plans and to his promises. And so pray big, audacious prayers, knowing that he will hear you. And that he invites you, he invites all of us to join him in what he is doing, what he is always doing in our beautiful but broken world. Let me pray. Father, we praise and worship you for your glory, for your holiness, and for your faithfulness. Thank you for your unending faithfulness to your great unstoppable plan to make a people for yourself and for the way in which you've invited us to be included amongst those people. Jesus, we pledge our love and loyalty to you as our rescuer and as our king, as the true Joshua who responds to our cries when we ask you to save us, even when doing so would mean the cost of your life. Holy Spirit, we ask you to use these scriptures to remind us of who you are and how you work in this world and how you want us to live in this world as your people. We ask you to continue to use these scriptures to shape our hearts and our minds so that we can live well and faithfully in our beautiful but broken world. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.